Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. If we boiled life down to its essential ingredients, we really don't need much. Water, rest, and food. And if we're really blessed, we enjoy security, friendship, and a sense of achievement. But we live lives that seem dependent on so much more. Cars, clothing, vacations, houses, shoes, gadgets, toys. Our happiness is based on living our lives inside all this stuff. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, not I am the newest iPhone of life or I am the Hawaii timeshare of life. Bread, just bread, simple, basic, the foundation of life. He knew that once we diverted from this, that we would never have enough. He knew he would try to fill the void inside us with everything but him. So he keeps bringing us back to the basics. I am the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Believe and be satisfied. Very good morning to all of you. As you know, we are on a summer series titled I Am, where we are exploring some of the bold claims of Jesus from the Gospel of John. I want to welcome all those watching us from our regionals or tuning into our live broadcast online. So glad you can join us today. Last weekend, I spoke to you on the statement, I am the light of the world. When the light of Jesus shines in our heart, the darkness of our sin and shame will have to flee. Today, we are going to look at another I am statement where Jesus uses a very simple metaphor to communicate a significant spiritual truth. We're going to see what Jesus meant when he said, I am the bread of life. When I was in grade eight, we used the novel Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens as our English textbook. So if you've read the book or seen the movie, you will be familiar with the scene. Nine-year-old Oliver is in a parish workhouse where the boys are served three meals a day of thin gruel. The soup bowls did not need any cleaning because the boys polished it with their spoons. This was slow starvation for Oliver and the rest of the preteen boys with voracious appetites. The boys hold a council meeting Lots were cast as to who should go up and ask for more food. And lo and behold, the lots fall on Oliver. That evening during supper time, the boys are sitting nervously, and they are nudging Oliver to go forward. And Oliver finally musters enough courage to utter those famous words, Please, sir, I want some more. All hell breaks loose, and the matter goes to the board with a serious accusation that Oliver Twist has asked for more. When a starving boy asks for more, it is quite reasonable. 
But what is unreasonable is the cry of our materialistic world for more. I want more. Give me more. We have more stuff than any generation ever, and yet we seem to be obsessed with getting more stuff. The aim of advertising is to make you believe that you are incomplete without the product. So advertisers' one intent is to make you discontent. An ad agency staff was quoted in the New York Times saying, we've gone from being exposed to about 500 ads a day back in the 1970s to as many as 5,000 a day. Can you imagine that? 5,000 advertisements screaming at us every day and clamoring for our attention. The goal of most marketers and advertisers is to cover every blank space with some kind of a promotional material or a logo or an advertisement. But the question is, does changing the brand of beer we drink or the perfume we wear or the car we drive going to solve our deepest problems? No, it only augments that obsession with more. Nowhere is our fascination for more seen as in the size of our soft drinks. I read an article on the internet titled, Too Big to Chug, How Our Sodas Got So Huge. The article talks about our love affair with sodas that has led to outrageously supersized drink sizes. KFC introduced a drink so big that it had a, a bucket handle to carry it. And in what could only be a cruel joke, for every mega jug purchased, KFC promised to donate $1 to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. <laughs> when 7-Eleven started selling the 32-ounce Big Gulp, ads ran the slogan, 7-Eleven's Big Gulp gives you another kind of freedom freedom of choice. They also have a 44-ounce Super Gulp that has 128 grams of sugar and over 500 calories. But the irony in all of this is an average human bladder can hold only 13 ounces of liquid. And the urge to urinate comes when the bladder is about one quarter full. So the only freedom that these supersized drinks give you <laughs> is the freedom to go pee-pee. <laughs> Without doubt, our world seems to have that incessant urge for more. We seek for something that will satisfy the longings of our heart. The truth is, most of these desires we battle with are superficial. Because we are spiritual beings, our deepest hungers are not physical, but spiritual. Even before our bodies were fully formed in our mother's womb, we had a soul. Our most valuable possession is our soul, that invisible, eternal part of all of us. It's the real you. And that is why our deepest cravings are spiritual. We hunger for love, meaning, significance, and purpose. And no amount of material things are going to satisfy those desires. And that is why the I am statement that we're going to look at today is so relevant. 
Jesus makes here an astonishing claim when he says, I am the bread of life. Just as our physical life is dependent on food for survival, in the same way, Jesus alone can sustain our spiritual lives. I'm going to ask us to stand up as we read the scripture portion for today from John chapter 6, verses 25 to 40. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Shall we pause for a word of prayer? Lord, we want to fix our eyes on your Son, because those who look to him have eternal life. Thank you for the power of your word. We want to believe from the depth of our heart that you are the bread of life who can truly nourish us. So even today, would you feed us, Lord, from the truth of your word, that as we grasp these truths, our hearts will be satisfied. We pray that you will move freely in our midst, that your Holy Spirit will have complete freedom in this place, and you will accomplish what you had in mind for this service. We want to commit this time to you. May you lead us by your Spirit. For we ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, you may be seated. The passage that we read now comes right after the most famous miracle that Jesus performed, the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. The miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John are called as signs because the miracles pointed to who Jesus is. When you come down Edmonton Trail, you will see a sign, Center Street Church, with an arrow pointing towards our church. The purpose of that sign is to help people find our church. 
The last thing we want is for people to gather where the sign is. Because that's not the purpose of the sign. The sign has to draw attention to the place where it is pointing. So in the same way, the miracles of Jesus were signs that pointed to his divinity. They were not an end in themselves, but they served as a means for people to know Jesus. The crowd that Jesus fed followed him because they wanted more food. So in our passage in verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So Jesus looked at the crowd and said, Your motive in following me is not right. You're following me for the physical and temporal benefits, not for the spiritual things that I have to offer. The crowd wanted more of his blessings, not more of him. People follow Jesus for all kinds of reasons, and not all motives are right. When life seems to be going smooth and easy, the last thing people worry about is their spiritual life. God is not even in the back of their mind. But at the signs of difficulty, when things get really desperate, that is the time people come to church, ask for prayers, and when the problems are solved, they revert back to that same old life. Such people seek Jesus for what they can get from him, not for who he is. Now, this is Jesus' response. This is the crowd's response to Jesus, verses 30 to 31. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. There was that belief in Judaism that when the messianic age draws in, that God would once again provide them with manna from above. So the crowd was saying, we know that Moses provided manna to our ancestors. If you claim to be the Messiah, then provide us with food. Take care of all our physical needs. We will even make you our king. We have to first understand the Old Testament backdrop of the story of manna in order to understand Jesus' bread of life discourse. You go back to the book of Exodus, God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. 400 years of cruel bondage and enslavement finally came to an end when the hand of God delivered them and set them free. God miraculously rescued them through a series of stunning miracles culminating in the parting of the Red Sea. The people of God walked jubilantly while Pharaoh and his armies drowned in the water. So a spectacular miracle had taken place. Three days into their journey in the wilderness, the people faced their first hiccup, a water crisis. God once again shows up, takes care of that need. Again, a few days later, we see the picture of all of Israel, the entire community of people, complaining to Moses about the lack of food. So in Exodus 16, verses 2 to 3, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. 
There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What? Are you kidding? Just a while ago, the entire community had sung a praise song of God's deliverance in their life. The praise chorus were, were still ringing in their ears when all of a sudden they start a new song, a song of grumbling. Have you so quickly forgotten the pain of being slaves, your children being drowned in the Nile, the ruthlessness of the Egyptian taskmasters who put you to work, the affliction and the tears as you cried out to God in desperation? What kind of spiritual amnesia is this? That 400 years of hard toil and labor just wiped out and they were complaining that God had brought them to the desert. There was a recent news item on CDV about an Indian elephant named Raju who was freed from slavery after 50 years. Raju was poached as a young calf and then sold to different owners who abused him in order to make money. So Raju was shackled and tortured for five long decades until an animal activist group performed an undercover operation to rescue the elephant. The activist said Raju's legs were covered in spikes and it literally cut into his flesh. The people who rescued the elephant reported that the elephant literally shed tears, tears streaming down his cheeks, tears of gratitude, of joy, for finally being delivered from 50 years of a hard life. The animal cooperated with the efforts of the activists, knowing they had good intentions. Raju the elephant knew how to be grateful to those who delivered him from his slavery, and yet the people of God who were rescued after enduring tyranny for 400 long years were complaining murmuring, and even wish that they went back to their old life. This was a habit. Every time Israel encountered a shortcoming or a minor inconvenience, the default mode was to grumble. And God, in His grace, supplies them with manna in spite of that rebellious attitude. So he gives them food from heaven that tasted like wafers made with honey. So manna reigned for 40 years throughout their journey in the wilderness. Can you imagine food falling from heaven? That took care of them and sustained them. This is what God said in Exodus 16, verses 11 and 12. I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat. And in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That's the key there. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So the Lord was saying the purpose of this miraculous provision of manna was so that people will know him. So manna served as a sign that through this gracious provision, the people of God would know God's character and nature. But the people were not satisfied with God's provision. They were discontent and complaining against God and against His leadership. The complaining 
resurfaced again in Numbers 11, 4 to 6. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. That attitude was responded with an act of judgment by God. So what we see in the Gospel of John, as we read John chapter 6, are some striking parallels between Moses feeding the people with manna and Jesus feeding the 5,000. Like the giving of manna was a sign that pointed to who God was, in the same way, the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that pointed to who Jesus is. And in both the cases, the results were the same. The people were grumbling and not satisfied. The crowd that Jesus fed wanted more. They wanted more food. They wanted to see more miracles. We may look at these passages and wonder, how can the Israelites be so forgetful and complain after all that the Lord had done for them? We may look at the crowd and say, did you not see a miracle right in front of your eyes? A little boy's lunch being multiplied to feed a huge crowd? Is that not enough? But the question is, how different is the world we live in? With all the abundance that we have, are we any better off? I don't think so. Many times our default mode seems to be to grumble. Think about this past week. How many of us were guilty of saying, oh, it's so hard, it's unbearable. I don't complain when it's hard, I love it. But when it gets 30 below zero, ah, that's a different story. I don't just complain, I lament. But when we grumble, we got to realize this, that God actually hears our grumblings. And aren't we grateful that he doesn't strike us down with a lightning bolt? Otherwise, Calgary will become a ghost town. <laughs> the grumblings only serve to show the discontent within our hearts. At the bottom of some of the most biggest mistakes we make in life is that feeling of discontent. And Satan uses those feelings of discontent to deviate us from the right path. When a husband walks away from his wife and children for another supposedly beautiful woman half his age, when a person invests his life savings on a guaranteed financial scheme only to lose everything, when a Christian girl ends up marrying a non-Christian because she's tired of being single, when a person quits a well-paying job because they are not fulfilled in it. When a couple buy a larger home, way beyond their means, because they want to keep up with their friends. At the heart of these life-altering decisions, lurking behind is that feeling of discontent that leads us astray. 
the rest of this message, I want to show you how Jesus removes that discontent in our heart and fills us with lasting satisfaction. Going back to our passage, this is how Jesus responded to the crowd. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus is drawing a contrast between himself and the manna that God provided in the wilderness. The manna was an expression of God's grace to the people of Israel. Without manna, they would not have survived that journey in the wilderness. God took care of their physical need. In fact, this is what Moses said about manna in Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus used these very words to counter the temptation of Satan when he was tempted to change the stones into bread. So fundamentally, this is what the manna did. It challenged Israel's self-sufficiency. They learned what it means to depend on God. Because unless God provided, there would be no breakfast on the table. Unless God provided, there would be no lunch or dinner. Every single day for 40 long years, they were looking up to the hand of God to take care of their need. They were not looking for manna. They were looking for God to come through. And herein was a vital lesson that God was teaching them. There is something more important than food to sustain life. It is that relationship with God. And that's exactly what Jesus, the true bread, offers us. A relationship with God that truly nourishes and satisfies. We talk about the good life. The good life is not about satisfying our appetites or indulging in our desires. That's in fact a shallow, self-centered life that robs us of joy and fulfillment. The pleasures of sin are fleeting. Only God can give us abiding joy. Look at verse 33. Jesus said, For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The real good life is the life that Jesus offers us. The Greek language uses three different words for life. The word bios, which signifies physical life, out of which we get our word biology. Then there's the word suke, which talks about the life of the mind, out of which we get our word psychology. And then there is this word zoe, which refers to a divine life. And that's the term that Jesus repeatedly uses in the Gospel of John. We can take university courses to master our understanding of biology and psychology, but only God can give us an understanding of the divine life. While we all have that physical and emotional life, what we desperately need is that spiritual life. And it is that spiritual life that Jesus extends to us. The very purpose of his coming, that we might have life 
and life to the full. To help us to understand the zoe or divine life, Jesus declares in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Hunger and thirst, strong traits, and they represent the restlessness and the deep longings of the human heart. These are universal longings. And what Jesus is promising here is fulfillment. Jesus does not give us the bread of life. He is the bread. So in Jesus, the human heart finds what it's been searching for all along. Let me be clear here. Jesus does not give us everything we want, so our life has material abundance. No, that's a distorted teaching. Pastor Robert Jeffress, in a book called The Road Most Traveled, mentions that contentment comes from a word that means containment. So it's a person who is self-contained. He or she draws satisfaction from the internal resources as opposed to the external resources. That's what Jesus, the bread of life, offers us. A wealth of internal resources of joy, peace, and security. The Greek word translated contentment can be defined as a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. A perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. That is a significant definition. Because contentment is coming to the realization that Jesus is all we need. We don't need any other aid or support. When we lean on him, we realize that he is big enough and strong enough to hold us, that we don't need any other external support. So whether we are healthy or sick, rich or poor, happy or sad, having a job or jobless, married or single, we can be content because we have Jesus to lean on. Today, I can say from my heart that I am a blessed man with confidence, not because of what I have, but because of who I have in my life. Now, having Jesus in our life doesn't mean that we will not go through those dry seasons. They will come. But even in those seasons, we know that we can lean on Jesus and he will walk with us. Contentment, if you understand it from a biblical point of view, completely redefines how everybody else sees that word. Because contentment from a Bible's viewpoint is not just a passive willingness to put up with things. No, it's a vital, living force, a a power that is inside of us through the indwelling Christ that enables us to conquer. So the question is, have you found your contentment in Christ alone? Have you come to experience the life that he offers us? One of the beautiful hymns written during the 17th century 
is the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus. Listen to the wordings. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, and crown. Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer, Jesus is purer, who makes the awful heart to sink. Beautiful Savior, Lord of all the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. Can we say honestly from our heart that Jesus is fairer than anything else that we could ever seek for? It is about being wonderstruck and in awe of the one who gave us everything. Never ceasing to be in awe of his amazing grace, his unconditional love, his healing and transforming power, his ability to fill us with joy and strength even when we hit rock bottom. Never lose that sense of wonder. Let Jesus be our soul's glory, joy, and crown, for that is the secret to contentment. Sometimes when we go to our prayer closet, our prayers are about going through a long list of things we want. Times it will do us good when we can go to the presence of God and say from our heart, Lord, I don't need anything from you. Your presence is more than enough. Your presence has satisfied me. I am blessed. When God sees his children find their contentment in him, it delights his heart. Going back to our passage in verse 40, Jesus said, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Everyone who looks to the Son, who fixes their eyes on him, have this promise of eternal life. That is the reason why we as Christians can be content knowing that this life is not all we have. Jesus says the abundant life, the, the divine life that he gives us is life eternal. Death is the great human equalizer. Nobody can outrun death. The cold reality of death confronts us every now and then. But even death does not have the power to quench the life that Jesus has given to us. Death has been conquered, defeated, and stripped of its power. If we see death as the end of our existence, then it is a tragedy. But for all of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we know that death is a gateway to a face-to-face -face meeting with him. Completely gives us a different perspective. And this life does not end when we die. It carries on to a greater level of satisfaction on the other side 
of eternity. It's a powerful teaching in John chapter 6. But towards the end of the chapter, we see the people's response. The people have heard these sayings, and they conclude that the sayings are hard. They have nothing to do with Jesus, and they walk away. Look at these verses. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. A critical juncture in the Gospel of John when the majority of the crowd, fascinated by the signs and miracles of Jesus who had followed him all along, are confronted with discipleship and they decide that they don't want to follow Jesus and they turn away. That is our generation. Our world that finds the life-giving teachings of Jesus to be hard. The problem in our Western world is we are looking for bread everywhere else except Jesus. The Lord said in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So God was saying, His people had set aside the fresh resource of sparkling spring water and gone for a cistern, a pit that had been dug that would hold dirty rainwater. In their decision to turn away from God and worship idols, they made this deliberate choice to cut themselves off from the source of life. Rather than finding the true satisfaction in God, they looked everywhere else for cheap substitutes. But the cisterns that they had were broken and empty, and they could never quench their thirst. That is a description of our Western world. We have forsaken Jesus, the bread of life, the living water, and we have dug for ourselves cisterns that are broken, that can hold no water. Vishal Mangalwadi is an Indian Christian philosopher who's recently written a significant book titled The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. In this book, Mangalwadi talks about the influence of the Bible in every facet of Western civilization. Politics, science, academics, technology, morality, family, everything has been profoundly shaped by the influence of the Bible. The prosperity and success of the Western world is largely because of our Christian foundations. The book categorically states that without the Judeo-Christian worldview, there would be no Western civilization as we know it. The Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament have contributed more to the development of the West than any other single factor. Now, coming up with these significant insights, the author goes on to issue a solemn warning to our generation. 
The final chapter of the book is aptly titled, The Future Must the Sun Set on the West. The post-Christian West has unfortunately come to that conclusion that the Bible is no longer relevant, that Jesus is no longer necessary. This unfortunate stance, according to Mangalwadi, is equivalent to the amputation of our soul. That explains the decadence, the deterioration and decay that we see all around us. Is it a surprise that the world around us lies in darkness, searching for meaning and hope because we have wandered away from the teachings of the Bible and who Jesus claims himself to be? Because of that bankruptcy of our soul, the restlessness inside of us, we have bought into this myth, the myth of more. If only I have more, my life will be better. There are things that we so desperately want because we think it's going to give us joy and meaning. So we chase after those elusive dreams thinking that it is the answer to our heart's longings. And you finally, finally lay your hands on those very dreams that you so desperately wanted and realize that it is surprisingly hollow. Think of any experience in life that you earnestly longed for, wanted it so badly, finally get to experience it, and it only lets you down. C.S. Lewis said, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Is it a surprise that our dream house, our dream car, that girlfriend or boyfriend, that dream job, that dream vacation, being married, becoming a parent, retirement. None of those things can fill the void in our lives. Jesus, the bread of life, is still the only answer to the longings of the human heart. Just as the bread needs to be broken before we partake it, the bread of life was broken on the cross. He was broken for our sins. His body was ripped apart. He was beaten and wept 39 times until his skin and flesh were torn. They drove nails into his hands and feet. And it is because he was broken, we can be healed. Jesus shows his nail-pierced hands and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is how the bread would impart life to the world through his own brokenness. And as we feed on him, we receive life, life eternal. I'll close with this illustration. 
a research was done with a fish in a large tank. The researcher blocked off a section of the tank with a transparent wall and put fish food on the other side. The fish desperately attempted to get to its food, but could not. After repeated attempts, the fish concluded that there's no way it can reach out to the food, no way it can receive nourishment. So it stopped trying. At this point, the researcher removed that transparent wall. But the fish still did not go for the food. Even when fresh food was added, the fish did not even attempt to go for it and died of starvation. The world around us is starving spiritually. And they have looked everywhere for, for food and they've come to that conclusion that nothing can satisfy, that nothing can fill the void. And they have even stopped trying. And it is our joy as Christians to be able to say, we do have access to the bread of life, and he indeed satisfies, he indeed fills the void of our lives. And we extend the invitation along with prophet Isaiah, come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? When people see our life and they notice the internal resources that we possess freely given to us by Christ, when they see our attitude of contentment, the world will want to come to know Jesus because they will believe that he indeed fills the longings of our heart. We become living testimonies. I'm going to ask us to stand as we come to a closing. You've heard the truth from God's word. This is a time for us to respond. And I know there are some of you here, you have the void in your life that you have tried to fill it with everything else and it has failed you. And I want you to know today, Jesus, the bread of life, died for you on the cross. There's a room for you in his heart. And when you open your life to him, you will see the miracle take place, the miracle of life, life eternal, coming into your heart. Do you make that decision today? There are others of us who are followers of Christ. And I'm going to ask you to just open your palms like this and say to Jesus, Jesus, I don't need anything else. You are more than enough. You have satisfied my heart. I am blessed. So thank you. So as we maintain this moment of silence, I would like you to respond to God in whatever way he is speaking to you. And then I'll close us with prayer.
Father, we want to confess today as your children. We are so blessed, blessed beyond measure to receive your love, to receive joy, meaning, and purpose to our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the bread of life who truly nourishes our soul. And we stand complete in you. And we pray, oh God, that you will teach us that attitude of contentment. That, Lord, the living waters will flow from within us and will be a powerful testimony to those around us. As they see the way we live our lives, let them be drawn to the source of life. I pray for the ones who have invited you into their life today. That, Lord, you will become their bread. That you will fill them with, their, with your love. That those desperate longings of their heart will come to rest as they understand who you are and what you can do in our lives. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Well, there will be prayer partners available who will be happy to pray with you. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.